0: Welcome to the LSE events podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences.
1: Hello and welcome to the LSE for this LSE public event. Uh, my name is Professor Geoffrey Schweroth. I am the head of the Department of International Relations and I'm also a professor of international relations here at the London School of Economics and Political Science. I am very pleased to welcome you here tonight in person and online to the 2023-2024 Fred Halliday Memorial Lecture. Fred Halliday began teaching at the LSE in 1983, and was a professor of international relations here from 1985 to 2008, holding the Montague Burton chair of international relations from 2005 until his retirement from the school. Fred was one of the world's leading Middle East scholars, international relations theorist, and analyst of global affairs. This year, the Department of International Relations is fortunate to have Professor Madawi Al-Rashid deliver the Fred Halliday Memorial Lecture. Madawi Al-Rashid is a visiting professor at the Middle East Center and fellow of the British Academy. Her research focuses on history, society, religion, and politics in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf, Middle Eastern Christian minorities in Britain, Arab migration, Islamist movements, state and gender relations, in Islamic modernism. She has published several books on Saudi Arabia. Her most recent book is The Sun King, Reform and Repression in Saudi Arabia. She was the prize fellow at Nuffield College, Oxford, has taught at Goldsmith College, the University of London, in the Institute of Social and Cultural Anthropology, at the University of Oxford. She regularly contributes to international television and print media. Her op-eds have appeared in Al-Manator, The Guardian, Politico, Foreign Policy, Middle East Eye, New Internationalist, La Vanguardia, and Foreign Affairs. She continues to do consultancy work for governments, non-governmental international organizations, and businesses in the UK and around the world. In tonight's lecture, Professor Al-Rashid will explore the perils of Saudi nationalism. For those using X, formerly known as Twitter, the hashtag for tonight's events is hashtag LSE Saudi nationalism. This event is being recorded and will be made available as a podcast, subject to there being no technical issues. As usual, there will be a chance for you to put questions to our speaker, and I will let those of you in person and online know when the floor is open for questions. <coughs> and I'd ask you now to join me in welcoming Professor Madawi Alashi.
0: Honor to um, deliver the Fred Halliday Memorial Lecture. I would like to thank the Department of International Relations and NSC for giving me this opportunity to pay homage to a great professor who um, made a big difference at the time when he started writing, not only um, uh, for other academics, but for me personally. And there is a personal story that I should start with. In the early 1980s, I came across one of Fred Halliday's um, iconic books, um, Arabia Without Sultans, published in um, 1974. So here you have the original uh, cover, um, uh, published by Penguin in 1974. And then Arabia Without Sultans, published by Al-Saki Books in 2001. We could talk about the change of the cover later.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Um, So uh, I came across uh, uh, this book um, several years after it was published. Drawn to the prospect of Arabia without sultans, I identified with Fred's anti-imperialist and pro-revolutionary position. As a child growing up in Saudi Arabia in the 1960s and 1970s, during the reign of King uh, Saud and Faisal, I heard stories about people disappearing, plots to overthrow the regime, uh, coup d'etats, bombs exploding in various cities and government offices, free princes, assassinations, the mabahif, the secret service, intelligence services, torture in prisons, public executions, and long-term prison sentences. A year before Fred's uh, book was published, it was estimated that there were 2,000 political prisoners in Faisal's jails. Official media inside Saudi Arabia referred to them as traitors, enemies of God, stooges of Nasser, Yemeni agitators, and atheist Leninist Maoists, who undermined the faith of the pious and pure Saudi Muslim nation. At the time, I never understood why repression was happening in Saudi Arabia on such a wide scale when the country was just beginning to enjoy its first oil boom in the early 70s. I searched for Arabic books and articles to explain the wave of repression, but found none in Saudi Arabia. In, uh, in my family's private library, I found Nasser Saeed's book, Tarikh Al Saud, The History of Al Saud. By the way, you could find the book in some of the shops on Edgewood Road. <laughs> this book was smuggled by my father from Beirut and hidden behind several other books on the shelves to hide it. I stood as a, a child on the desk and grabbed that uh, book. Um, It took me several days to read it, it was obviously in Arabic. Uh, It was the taboo book written by an early dissident who had been in exile for several years. In the country all I encountered was oral narratives, stories told by family and friends about the repression that was taking place. There was also silence because the walls had ears according to local saying. As I moved to Beirut in 1975, I found many sources, mainly journals such as Al-Tali'a and pamphlets by revolutionary groups, communists, nationalists, and others. The bookshops of Beirut at the time were full of these small booklets written by Saudis in exile, um, often under their nom de guerre, and were published by the many publishing houses in, the, in Beirut. Nasser al book, was one of them. However, my knowledge was incomplete and I was not happy just reading those books and little pamphlets. These little pamphlets uh, were a mix of revolutionary zeal and ideological tropes. Their target was the imperialists, so-called imperialists, the archaic Saudi regime, the oil-rich princes who plundered wealth and sold oil to the Americans and the West. Needless to say, there were other trashy booklets outlining the immoral Saudi rulers who, pose- who professed religion in public, but in the privacy of their homes and abroad, plundered wealth on gambling, prostitution, alcohol, and other forbidden pleasures. I wanted context and explanations. Both were lacking in the revolutionary literature I found. I thought I discovered a, a treasure when I read Fred's book, whose title, I must confess, I admired at age 18 and wished it became true. At that age, I aspired to see Arabia without sultans, as you can imagine. The book deals mainly with North and South Yemen, Oman, the smaller Gulf states, and Iran. Only chapter one and two explain the history and trajectory of Saudi Arabia. In these two chapters, Fred, provided me with the context in which the oral stories I had heard over and over again can't be fully understood. His two chapters explain to me the background of the dissident that I encountered in Beirut as a young girl, for example, the famous Nasr al who was kidnapped later on by the Saudis in Beirut in 1979, and until the present day, we don't know where he is. One paragraph in Fred's book entitled um, Crushing the Saudi People summed up for me why Saudi Arabia was descending into a repressive regime. Fred wrote, and I quote, the Saudi clique, he means the princes and their entourage, had the double and unequivocal role of crushing all internal challenges and of policing as much of the Middle East as it could in the interest of pro-imperialist stability in inverted commas. Both the oil consortium and the US government did all they could to keep the Saudi regime in power, intervening only to urge reforms that would strengthen their, their clients. And it is relevant today, I would say. Um, although this was written in 1974. So Fred went on to, in these two chapters, went on to map the various groups that challenged the Saudi regime in the 1950s and 60s. I imagined him sitting, sipping tea and coffee and possibly beer with exiles such as the Nasirite Arab Nationalists The trade union rebels yes there were trade unions in Saudi Arabia the communists and the many others who uh, dedicated their life to changing the political system notwithstanding his clear and honest ideological, ideological position Fred's approach made a great impression on me and encouraged me to pursue an academic career investigating Saudi Arabia and telling stories that nobody dared to tell inside the country. During my first year at the American University of Beirut, I wanted to follow the steps of Fred and write a detailed study of Saudi opposition in exile, especially in Lebanon, drawing on my family's contacts with them in the Lebanese capital. Unfortunately, my studies were disrupted in 1982, I was a first year undergraduate, as a result of the Israeli invasion of Lebanon, I moved to Britain, and the rest is history. In my academic work, I refrained from using Fred's terminology of class struggle and revolutionary zeal, uh, and also revolutionary analysis. I trained at the Cambridge Anthropology Department under the supervision of another great thinker of this LSE establishment, Professor Ernest Gellner. As anthropologists in the 1980s, we talked about tribes rather than classes. We didn't talk about class struggles, we talked about probably co-option and co-optation of, of various groups. Yet Fred's emphasis on seeing Arabia through the prism of injustice, inequality and repression made an everlasting impression on me and my career. In his analysis, there was the West, Britain initially, and later the US. The sultans, the sheikhs, the kings, and the emirs against the rest. And in his terminology, uh, the rest were nomads, peasants, slaves, tribesmen, and immigrants. These binary forces remained a constant focus in my research thanks to the insight I gained from reading Fred's many books. In this lecture, I should demonstrate how one of my latest research mentioned by Jeff, the Sun King, um, Reform and Repression in my Saudi Arabia, is actually a continuation of that line started by Fred in the 70s, mainly focusing on Saudi exiles, um, um, both in the UK, in the US, and Canada. But also, I will specifically talk today about religion and politics, in addition to nations and nationalism in the Middle East, that inspired the book. So um, I want to talk about the nationalism that, uh, the national narratives uh, that Saudi regime developed in order to justify the inclusion of a vast territory uh, into one state. I will briefly mention three phases of the national narrative, but will focus um, in in greater detail on the current situation. Um, If anybody's interested in going through uh, the the development in greater uh, detail, you must read the book. So under Mohammed Ibn Salman, the the kingdom continues to call itself Saudi Arabia a name that does not invoke a national identity or people, but refers to the Al Saud royal family who brought it together. State building evolved over time and various state institutions were created, proliferating along with the country's increasing oil wealth. The other more difficult project, that of building a nation or a national identity, was equally fluid, evolving over time in most cases dictated by state consolidation and above all its legitimacy. The project of nation building was troubled from its first days as the Al Saud struggled to construct a nation out of the fragments, mainly the pervasive sub identities that dominated Arabia or the supranational identity that the regime uh, promoted. Usually, uh, Nations are held together by historical and structural factors. I'm not gonna go into detail uh, about theories of nationalism. I'm sure those of you who are studying politics have done that uh, in your first or second year. And LSE is is the champion in the field of studying nation and nationalism. But I just few sentences that clarify where I'm coming from. So, nations need above all a national narrative to justify their inclusion in one political entity, a state. Also nations need special institutions, especially education, print and visual media, the military and the law to homogenize newly conquered people. Ardent advocates of nationalism always insist that their nations are ancient, constant and unchanging but their narratives about what constitute the nation often do change over time. As certain of these constants, in inverted commas, um, and ancient characteristics of the nation are dropped, forgotten, or replaced by new constructions. In Saudi Arabia, unlike most post-colonial states, the Saudi polity did not consolidate itself on the premise that there had been an ancient Saudi nation aspiring to be freed from foreign domination such as for example the anti-colonial nationalism that flourished in the Arab world in India and in other places in order to become an independent sovereign state the Al Saud Justification for the creation of the state was occasionally depicted as a return to possess by the sword what had originally belonged to them, but had been lost over time. In addition, they presented their conquest of Arabia as an urgent religious mission to return its population to a pristine Islam and correct the alleged un-Islamic malpractices of the Arabian population. These narratives specifically distinguish so-called Saudi nationalism from other manifestations of nationalism in the Arab world and beyond. Perhaps only the creation of Pakistan in, in the middle of the 20th century as a nation for Indian Muslims, or Israel as a home for the Jewish diaspora and a Jewish state offer parallels with the Saudi project. Like all national narratives, Saudi Arabia has changed its focus over time since the creation of the state. And various elements have been added to it, but three phases are clearly identified. The first one I call religious nationalism. We are used to nationalism as being a secular uh, uh, project uh, with its own intelligentsia who extract from the nation certain characteristics such as their culture, their common history, their language, their values. But the Saudi one was from the very beginning a religious project, so I call it religious nationalism that dominated the country after its creation in 1932. The second phase is a pan-Islamic transnational identity that was promoted in the context of the Cold War from the 1960s onward. And the final phase, which we are in at the moment, under the leadership of Mohammed bin Salman, although it had started earlier, I would say around 2000, um, um, it, it, uh, it represents a retreat into a narrow definition of Saudi Arabia summed up in developing a strong local populous Saudi national identity. Represented in online campaigns, and hashtags such as Saudi Arabia for Saudis, Saudi Arabia is great, etc. Such recent imagining of the nation is at odds with the Prince's other projects of turning Saudi Arabia into a global center for economic prosperity that could benefit the whole world. So this urgent and quest to um, open Saudi Arabia to the whole world coincides with an attempt to define Saudis or the country as Saudi, excluding the other elements that went with religious nationalism or the Islamic transnational identity. So the first... uh, state building project was conducted under a religious umbrella rather than a national agenda. So in a way much has been written about the religion of Saudi Arabia, namely the Wahhabi movement and a lot of theological arguments are analyzed but nobody has actually looked at it as a religious national ideology, basically, uh, that had become the religion of the state, the objective of which is to homogenize the Arabian population and give it a sense of of an identity. So in my research, I try to look at how the transformation happened um, um, and who the outspoken members of this religious nationalism. So mainly, the religious scholars of a specific region in Saudi Arabia, Najd or Central Arabia, where the capital is, took the lead in defining the contours of the religious pious nation. So they theorized how the Saudi nation uh, is an Islamic nation abiding by the tenets of the Wahhabi tradition, a religious revivalist movement that uh, that was established in the 18th century. So in order to homogenize the Saudi population that belonged to various tribes, groups, and non-tribal people, um, the imposition of um, Islamic law was meant to homogenize the nation. So applying this law was interpreted by the religious I call them in the intelligentsia, although there is a big debate whether we can call the ulama, the religious scholars, as an intelligentsia. Obviously, we do not invoke the meaning of the intelligentsia as it happened in Europe, but there is a specific meaning here. These were the first literate people in a society like Saudi Arabia towards the beginning of the 20th century. So I call them intelligentsia in inverted commas. So they applied Islamic law in order to homogenize the legal framework uh, by which the people are governed. Um, So they, in a way, served as this religious intelligentsia, and they were entrusted with the role of educating and indoctrinating the population in the right Islamic conduct, belief, and ritual. They all came from the central province called Najd, the region from which the Wahhabi scholars uh, came and also the Saudi royal family. And they were elevated to the status um, of the core region and the core intelligentsia in the country, uh, to the exclusion of the historical (coughs) region which is the Hejaz, the western part of Saudi Arabia where Mecca and Medina were present. So, in a way, the religious scholars of the central part of Saudi Arabia considered themselves to be the vanguard of a mission to save the whole of Arabia, including the blasphemous Hijazis, the inhabitants of Mecca and Medina, from their descent into unorthodox Islam. They elevated their own interpretation of Islamic texts to the level of the only authentic Islam and regarded other Muslims as following a corrupted tradition. In later years, the Wahhabi scholars became more vocal in uh, asserting that true Islam was only manifest in the central province of Arabia, Najd, their homeland. So instead of the vision of belonging to one Saudi nation, religious scholars promised the population an Islamic utopia, guided by themselves and the Al Saud leaders of Najd. And in terms of manifesting the legality of the religious nationalism, they invoke terminology from Islam, such as the bay'ah, which is the oath of allegiance. Whenever a king dies, the ulama are in charge of supervising the uh, population coming and giving the oath of allegiance to the new king. So uh, also they, are, they regarded themselves as a group of privilege uh, uh, scholars, they referred to themselves and the, gov- the, the, the royal family referred to them as the people who bind and tie Ahl al-Hal wal or the, the elite that should be consulted over any political, economic, or social issues. So they formed a, cla- a class to use Fred's terminology uh, with its own interest but they were uh, dependent on the state and dependent on uh, 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 subsidies salaries um, they became functionaries of the state and its religious uh, uh, nationals if you like so if we dig deeper into the institutions of the state after its formation we find that uh, the country upheld Islamic principles in the legal system in ways that exceeded what was common in other Arab countries. For example, in most Arab countries, uh, Islam is relevant as law, in the personal status law, inheritance, marriage, divorce, etc. But in Saudi Arabia, it was extended to, the Sharia was expanded to cover, expanded to cover uh, all aspects of life. Um, in, in the private and public spheres. Uh, To just give you examples of how religious nationalism manifested itself in gender relations Uh, for a very long time, before Mohammed bin Salman, um, people were uh, surprised why Saudi women didn't drive, why there was segregation in universities, in schools, etc. So the gender relations clearly demonstrated the commitment of of the Saudi state and Saudi Arabia to religious nationalism. Religious nationalism aspired to create godly women whose role was determined by God's design for this world. The education of girls, Uh, was introduced in the 60s to inculcate in them their domestic role under the guidance of religious scholars. While Muslim women elsewhere were able to enjoy freedom of movement, at least from legal perspective, and drove cars without any controversy or heated debate, Saudi women were denied the right to drive until 2017. So religious nationalism... Uh, sought to control women in the pursuit of grand political designs and communal identities. The state became the agency responsible for upholding the piety of the nation, which was increasingly defined in terms of excluding women, restricting their citizenship rights, allowing them only selective employment in education and health services, and minimizing their appearance in the public sphere. So the centrality of religious identity uh, uh, in Saudi Arabia gave a sense of belonging to an Islamic utopia. And in a way, this picture here captures the essence of that moment in history when religious nationalism was uh, flourishing and it was the pretext, the rationale of uh, creating a state. So in this picture, it shows that the, the Islamic warriors, the Jihadi warriors, they were called the Jihadi warriors who created the state. And there having the flag, you can't see it clearly here, but it has the, uh, the religious uh, writing on it. Um, the Islamizing the public sphere was extremely important because you have to have the symbols of religious identity. You have to have spatial representation of religious nationalism. And here it says the shop is closed for prayer. So unlike in other Muslim countries where the call for prayer, some shopkeepers might respond, others may not respond and close their shops, in Saudi Arabia it was compulsory to close until very recently. So these are the kings uh, of Saudi Arabia, King Saud and then King Faisal. So I'm going to come to King Faisal, so I'll leave this picture here. And it's a very iconic picture of him praying, and the <laughs> message was that he's praying uh, in order, uh, uh, he wishes to pray in Jerusalem. He is in control of Mecca and Medina, so the Jerusalem, the other his, uh, 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 holy sites for Muslims, uh, and this was the iconic one to prove his commitment now to pan-Islamic national identity or pan-Islamic identity. By the 1960s, when King Faisal became king, the Saudi regime was beginning to export its Islamic utopia abroad. It was believed that they've done their uh, best to create the Islamic utopia at the domestic level, and now it's time to export it abroad. To help incorporate a transnational, pan-Islamic, and supranational identity, (coughs) that justified the Saudi control over Mecca and Medina. (coughs) The state encouraged Saudis to identify as Muslims, forgetting their (coughs) subnational fragments, such as tribal identities, etc. And encouraged them to imagine them as belonging to an imagined supranational and non-territorial Muslim ummah larger than Saudi Arabia while thinking of their own role and territory as central to the whole of the Muslim world. The state and its religious and educational institutions began to indoctrinate Saudis with the idea that they had a responsibility to export their own Islamic utopia to the rest of the Muslim world, a concept that was endorsed by both their leadership and Saudis. And this Pan-Islamism became particularly appealing to Islamists from the 1960s onward. Like other Arab and Muslim countries, Saudi Arabia had its own Islamists who aspired to create an Islamic realm at home and abroad, to Islamize Muslim societies. The previous religious nationalism incorporated a duty to Islamize Saudi Arabia first, But during that phase, it was not possible to export the religious mission due to Saudi Arabia's limited resources, both financial and a shortage of uh, religious scholars who would be able to go to Indonesia, Malaysia, Egypt, and other places, spreading the the religious nationalism of Saudi Arabia. So together with Saudis, uh, the state uh, uh, contributed to a religious and political movement that came to be known as the Sahwa, the religious awakening. So most of its advocates had a strong commitment to pan-Islamism, which shares a number of structural similarities with nationalistic type ideologies, notably the focus on the liberation of territory the primacy placed on the fight against external enemies and the emphasis on internal unity in the face of outside threats. So this pan-Islamism developed out of several challenges and international situations that pushed the state to become the champion of transnational religious networks, promoting its own domestic religious nationalism as a blueprint for other Muslims around the globe. So why did Saudi Arabia shift to adopt this pan-Islamism and uh, inaugurate that by building institutions such as for example the Islamic University in Medina which was open for all Muslims who would come to Saudi Arabia on scholarships uh, to study Islam. And also the uh, King Faisal for example established the first um, uh, attempt to bring Muslim world together in the form of the Muslim World League in 1962, uh, in order to, I quote, championing Islamic causes abroad um, and to persuade conservative Muslim governments and activists to ally themselves with the kingdom rather than with nationalist leaders such as for example Egypt's Jamal Abdel Nasser, pan-Islamism would be the answer to pan-Arabism which was flourishing in the 60s under various uh, variations, such as Nasser's Arab nationalism or the Ba'athist in Syria and Iraq. So, projecting its localized religious tradition abroad became a preemptive mechanism to shield the country from the threat of subversive forces associated with Arab post-colonial nationalism. This threat came not only from outside Saudi borders, it had substantial advocates at home like the mentioned Nasser Saeed and many, many others. So surprisingly, Saudi-sponsored pan-Islamism was also instrumental in the West, mainly Britain and the USA during the height of the Cold War. So this was Nasser Saeed. and we'll we'll focus on this person in a minute. So the Saudi commitment to pan-Islamism must be situated within this global Cold War. Uh, Britain and the US began to construct Saudi Arabia as the center of the Muslim world, and ironically, its religious tradition became instrumental in luring Muslim youth away from what was called radical socialist and communist trends that Fred Halliday studied. In addition to what was defined as subversive Arab nationalism with its anti-imperialist rhetoric, Islam was seen as a powerful anti-communist belief system from Indonesia to Morocco. So Saudi cooperation in the Cold War culminated in its sponsorship of the Jihad in Afghanistan in 1979 against the Soviet Union, occupation of the country. The Saudis famously, I quote, matched U.S. funding channeling through the CIA dollar by dollar. While Saudi funding was important, a potent ideology inspiring young Muslims to participate in the jihad was definitely a substantial Saudi contribution. Now a a champion of pan-Islamism, the Saudi regime mobilized its own religious clerics. For example, its grand mufti, Abdelaziz Ibn Baz, Uh, to support the Afghan jihad. Young Saudi men, including Osama Bin Laden um, enthusiastically responded to the call for jihad and traveled to Afghanistan in the 1980s. Bin Laden became central to creating a hub for not only Saudi but also Arabs seeking to honor a pledge to support Muslims worldwide and die for faith. This was the seed that led to the creation of Al-Qaeda, a global umbrella under which jihad is operated. The cohort of recruits became known as the Afghan Arabs. The Reagan administration (laughs) authorized covert aid to the rebels while Saudi Arabia was entrusted with presenting the liberation of Afghanistan from godless communists as a stage in the pursuit of freeing a Muslim country from the evils of communism. Bender bin Sultan, the Saudi ambassador in Washington, and Turkil Faisal, the director of the intelligence services in Saudi Arabia, were both key figures in the project. Their commitment to pan Islamism was now translated into action in support of other Muslims and Western interests. Pan-Islamism was a crucial ideological weapon in the Cold War. King Salman, at the time he was the governor of uh, uh, Riyadh, the capital, where more than 5 million people lived, was an enthusiastic supporter of the migration of young Saudis to Peshawar in Pakistan near the Afghan border. And his charitable foundation provided much-needed financial help to make their travel cheap and possible. And I quote Muhammad bin Salman, the son of the king, Uh, When he was interviewed by uh, an American uh, channel in 2018, he said, Saudi Arabia's Western allies urged the country to invest in mosques and madrasas overseas, the uh, religious schools, during the Cold War in an effort to prevent encroachment in Muslim countries by the Soviet Union. But over the years, Saudi government lost track of such funding. Funding comes mostly from Saudi foundations rather than from the government. He tried to say that he wasn't the one, his, the government wasn't responsible, uh, which wasn't actually true, but that's another thing. So the crown prince was aware of how Saudi pan-Islamic missionary endeavors have become controversial, especially after, 2000 and, uh, after the 9-11 attacks when 15 of the hijackers were Saudis. So it was clear that several factors contributed to transnationalizing Saudi Islam and pushing Saudis to think of themselves as part of a global ummah, as part of a global uh, um, uh, religious community, a borderless religious community community and even non-territorialized because it included also Muslim minorities in uh, in, in the West. Um, So the message was actually directed towards Muslims around the globe in majority Muslim countries and in countries where Muslims are a minority. Uh, So pan-Islamism led to a monster, as you probably have gathered by now. And the monastery that Saudi Arabia and its Western allies created began to have its own agency. As an ideology capable of mobilizing Muslims around the world in the pursuit of dying for faith. And we've seen several of these episodes. So we come to what happened now, especially the built up after 9-11. In the 21st century, a new trend resembling an ill-defined Saudi nationalism a local Saudi nationalism is beginning to be seen as an alternative to both the religious nationalism of the first period and the pan-Islamism that uh, took place from the 1960s onward. So state-sponsored Saudi nationalism today began to appear early on in 2001, but Mohammed bin Salman, the present Crown Prince took it to another level. So after years of scattered deliberations, the Crown Prince openly adopted a fresh brand of Saudi nationalism, partly inspired by non-religious elements. While many observers dubbed this new redrawing of Saudi Arabia's identity as secular, I would uh, probably avoid, I, I would definitely avoid using the word secular. Uh, nationalism to define what is happening in Saudi Arabia today and try to avoid such a label because it doesn't reflect what's happening so it doesn't capture the shift from uh, in constructing the national narrative that characterizes the new realm ushered by the king and his son King Salman so there are multiple uh, ways of describing what is currently taking place aggressive national rebranding national revival and even nationalist tune. So this revival inspired a patriotic zeal among some citizens who attempt to define national identity in increasingly confrontational terms. This amount to a mix of boasting about an eternal Saudi national identity, the promise of greatness, the prospect of national rejuvenation, and new global projects and technological innovations in the post-oil era to prepare for that era. So the straight control media publicizes what is dubbed by analysts as hyper nationalism. The new national narrative today celebrates the new Saudi citizen who is committed to the development of his own country economically rather than the previously cherished pious Saudi who memorized the Quran, spread Islam around the globe and supported Muslim causes in various missions. He is also the citizen informer or the citizen policeman who helps the regime and its security agencies identify traitors, transgressors and subversive persons in the nation, embedded in the nation. So in the past, the religious scholars, what was called the mutawa, these are like the lowest level of religious uh, scholars who monitor the neighborhood, the mosque, etc. They were entrusted with this role of uh, basically spying on the local population under the pretext of watching who is coming to the Friday prayer, who is not coming in the morning, who is coming in the afternoon, who is going out with another uh, person from the opposite sex in a car supported by a police. But now the situation is different because such religious police doesn't exist anymore or it's under control. So uh, in the past the the religious scholars played this role and uh, critics of the new policies domestically, regionally and internationally were caught by this religious scholar but today, the new Saudi citizen, celebrated citizen, is no longer the one who obeys the religious clerics. In fact, it is the one who defies the religious cleric. And if you notice, possibly uh, before even Mohammed bin Salman, anybody defying the authority of the religious police is celebrated on YouTube, on, on social media. Uh, so. Uh, And the new citizen is no longer the recipient of the state-sponsored religious prizes that are given for memorizing the Quran or for good religious observance and zeal, but the eclectic and creative young entrepreneur and propagandist for the regime, these are the new. Uh, icons the new symbols of the new nationalism so national glory today resides in reinvented geography as well other than or perhaps in addition to historical Islamic Mecca and Medina and here is a historical site that in the previous two phases of nationalism was regarded as a symbol of Arabian paganism that should not be visited should not be uh, celebrated and in fact, the archaeology department struggled to find a new pre-Islamic sites. The main focus was on Islamic uh, uh, history, Islamic tradition, and archaeology. But since Muhammad bin Salman, this is Al-Ula, a new uh, celebrated historical site, obviously dating back to the Nabatian uh, era, pre-Islamic times. So with the exception of Dir'iyah, the original capital of the Al Saud in the 18th century, which had always been celebrated throughout the two, three phases of nationalism and modernized, um, and uh, now it is a a, a UNESCO world heritage under the patronage of King Salman. That was always celebrated. But today, other historical sites were simply uh, reinvented. Um, and Saudis are expected to uh, ha- to be proud of their pre- pre-Islamic heritage, which is incorporated in the new national narrative about themselves. They take pride in the listing of some of these uh, sites as UNESCO World Heritage Sites. And a new date was invented recently uh, for the beginning of Saudi Arabia. Most historians in the West and in Saudi Arabia considered the year 1744 as the year uh, when uh, the first Saudi state was founded simply because in that year uh, the alliance between the founder of the Wahhabi movement and one of the Saudi ancestors of the Saudi royal family had uh, a a pact. Uh, One of them, the religious scholar, promised to uh, uh, give the rulers legitimacy if they spread Islam in a jihadi project. Uh, so that was considered the date of the beginning of, the, of Saudi Arabia in the modern times, in the 17th, uh, 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 18th century, sorry. Um, but Muhammad bin Salman changed the date and considered the beginning of the state was uh, in, uh, uh, 1727, which was the rule of the Al Saud being established in Central Arabia. So he dropped the Wahhabi date in order to uh, isolate the Wahhabi tradition from the foundation of the state and make it play a less prominent role. So now um, The Crown Prince is the champion of the construction of a new kingdom and a new Saudi nation with a new foundation date. Western management consultancy companies were enlisted to help create this modern Saudi nationalism despite their lack of experience in such political endeavors which go far beyond their financial and economic expertise. So while tourism may bring revenues much needed, the development of tourism and the promotion of archaeological sites can also be a pillar of national narrative and pride. The Crown Prince preaches a new populist national narrative overtly focused on domestic interest and projected abroad to be consumed by global audiences, especially investors, financial uh, services, and foreign tourists. Um, so, the previously promised Islamic utopia at home and abroad is now gradually giving way to the promotion of a local Saudi entrepreneurial neoliberal utopia. Foreign policy, it's important to see that there is a shift as well. So, as I showed, uh, King Faisal wanted to pray in Jerusalem. Uh, today, Jerusalem is no longer central in the new national narrative as its importance belonged to the previous era of pan-Islamism. Competition with the Hashemites over the holy site in Jerusalem is no longer an issue. It used to be an issue uh, before the, uh, uh, in, during the uh, 1960s, simply because the Hashemites of Jordan were the guardians of, of the religious precinct. But today, Israel, rather than the king of Jordan, controls Jerusalem. And this is a much preferred uh, official Saudi position. They prefer that the legitimacy, is dep- uh, the, the king of Jordan is deprived of the legitimacy of being a guardian of, of Jerusalem. And if you uh, uh, remember during the time when Israel moved its capital to Jerusalem and uh, uh, President Trump recognized uh, uh, is, is, uh, Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, uh, the Saudis didn't actually uh, make a big fuss, Mohammed bin Salman in particular, and then As they sussed out the public opinion in the country which was expressed on social media platforms that there was some kind of agitation and uh, 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 and anger at the move, uh, then King Salman had to issue a statement to say that we recognize Jerusalem as belonging to the Muslims. But nothing happened after that. So for the crown prince, the Saudi nation is mainly the under 25s, and almost 51% of the population uh, are under this age. So he constantly reminds his audience of his own youth and the youth of his subjects. He presents himself as a role model to be emulated um, if Saudis are to be counted among the the modern nations. His youthfulness is symbolized by a carefree presentation of himself and his body and the excessive use of uh, media and modern communication gadgets. This came to the forefront when he appeared as a champion of car races on camera, sending a message that the youth and modernity of the prince should be uh, copied by the new young Saudis. He plays on the needs and aspiration of young Saudis to foster a new sense of belonging to the nation and consolidate his cult of personality as the future monarch. As the youth are his priority, he expects them to make Saudi Arabia theirs and pledged undisputed loyalty to him personally. In return, he promises them greater employment opportunities, a flourishing national heritage industry, new global popular cultural entertainment, and increasing connectedness with the outside world and the, future, the illusion of future liberal modernization. In short, the Crown Prince offers the Saudi nation bread and circus. But the remaining 49% of the population seem to be forgotten. This cohort must include all Saudis above the age of 25, amongst them many old government employees awaiting retirement or already retired while living on meagre pensions and insufficient benefits benefits to sustain the promised new lifestyle and enjoy the new entertainment utopia that the prince has created. By constructing the youth as a homogeneous national group, the crown prince defines their needs, dissolves their differences, and promises to provide opportunities for their rising aspirations. As Fred Halliday pointed out many decades ago, inequality and injustices are erased in national narratives. The new so-called nationalism offers the youth a break from past economic stagnation, religious zeal and social conservatism. It is only after the destruction of the old ways of doing things that the new nation will be born. The first step is rooting out and destroying old forces held responsible for immersing Saudi Arabia in religious fanaticism and social conservatism. It is to launch a repressive detention campaign and also executions against anybody or any dissident voice in the country. And this is exactly what had happened. And this is the price that Saudis pay for the new Saudi nationalism. The new Saudi nationalism remains a top-down initiative that has already enlisted ideologues to define and defend it. The trend is beginning to create a social base and embed itself as a new discourse, filling the void after the death of ideologies of Arab nationalism and Islamism. Its purpose is to create a new nation divorced from its recent radical Islamic or Arab roots. The new populist Saudi nationalism rejects an overall Arab identity in which Saudi Arabia and other countries can be merged. It points to how the liberation of Palestine should be a Palestinian rather than an Arab project. Hence the silence of Saudi Arabia over the last four or five months. And I quote here from a Saudi, Palestinians trade in their cause like the Turks and other Arabs. We Saudis are committed to the Palestinian cause as our king allows 1,000 Palestinians to perform the pilgrimage on his own account every year. We are surprised that the Palestinians insult us and they launch hate speech against us. This is a reference to the uh, social media encounters where these kind of insults are repeated and racism is, is thriving. So he says, I refuse that they insult our kings who had helped them a lot. So like all newly launched nationalism, this new Saudi version needs intellectuals, you know, entrepreneurs and young advocates to spread it at grassroots level among the youth using social media today. It's no longer you know, the books that define the nationalism, it's social media, um, uh, Twitter or ex-Twitter, uh, Instagram, uh, TikTok and the rest of, of, of the gadgets of modernity. So being Saudi rather than Arab or or Muslim is now key to the Crown Prince plan for the consolidation of his power and the future outlook of the country. Most importantly, it is regarded as key to the success of his economic transformation. The three goals that underpin most of his new so-called nationalist agenda. So I want to just conclude by uh, this is the uh, neoliberal entertainment this is uh, halloween last uh, november okay? okay so so let me just conclude by pointing to some elements in this religious nationalism uh, in the national process of building a nation and the perils of, of this current situation so, once you have a new Saudi nationalism defined as Saudi anchored in a central region of Arabia, we find that subnational identities, and there are many in Saudi Arabia, and a regional belonging might actually get pushed away. So, as the state sponsored action, it generates a reaction, mainly the revival of such sub-identities, such as, for example, those in the Hejaz, uh, the Ismailis in the south, it's, it's a religious group, the Shia in the eastern province, and even among some other Sunni Muslims uh, in the country. So all of them claim that they are excluded from the new Saudi nationalist project because the national project is anchored in the central part. So in this new narrative, there is a celebration of national hyper-masculinity as well in the context of Saudi military interventions, for example, recently in Yemen. So in a way, uh, they, they, we see an increased visibility of women in Saudi Arabia, in the streets, in the car industry, in the conferences, in the business, etc. But nationalism always needs women, uh, either need them as domesticated subjects or need them to promote and cheer men's masculinity. So in Saudi Arabia in 2015, at the beginning of the Yemen war, we see how Saudi female journalists were invited to go to the border to celebrate the heroism of Saudi soldiers fighting in Yemen. So. Women and nationalism have a particular relationship. We could talk about that later. I don't have uh, much time now. And and the, the, the war in Yemen also exposed the fact that Saudi Arabia cannot get rid of its religious nationalism altogether. It cannot get rid of the sectarianism of the religious national narrative that excluded other Muslims who did not subscribe to the Wahhabi tradition, such as, for example, the neighbors in Yemen who are in the north, Zaydis, belonging to the one of the Shia religious groups. So during that war, Muhammad bin Salman had to go back to the religious scholars and invite them to come and go to the border in order to inflame the, uh, uh, the courage of the uh, Saudi soldiers by telling them that they are on a jihadi mission against the Rafida, which is a negative uh, uh, name for the Shia in general and the Zaydis included. So the religious scholars were actually needed on, uh, in the war in Yemen. Uh, and this is why there is some kind of tension in the new Saudi nationalism that we are seeing today. Also, um, um, we see that this Saudi nationalism focuses on the local identity, but one aspect of it, it it collides with, for example, the fact that Saudi Arabia has over ten million immigrants who had uh, Uh, continued to arrive in the country. So if Saudi population is around 33 million, we have one-third of it uh, as immigrants. And this hyper-Saudi nationalism triggered some kind of racism and attacks on immigrants, especially Yemenis and uh, Ethiopians. And there had been waves throughout the last 10 years of Yemeni Ethiopian immigrants being accused of being the ones who manufacture uh, alcohol illegally, engage in prostitution. It's very much like the stories we hear in the West as well where all the ills of society are blamed on the immigrants. So the hyper nationalism that the Saudis are experiencing is actually giving rise to some attacks on immigrants and uh, uh, under the guise of uh, ending illegal immigration. Another problem with this uh, uh, nationalism is um, uh, it's seen as uh, creating a a new Saudi economic citizen. The jobs are for Saudis, but at the same time, uh, Saudis cannot do all the jobs. And it clashes with the neoliberal services that had been introduced into the country that need non-Saudis in order to uh, uh, function and spread across the country. So. Uh, The Saudi need to be proud of his Saudiness but he had to accept the fact that the country relies on foreign immigrants, on workers. But worse than that is that Saudi population is not predominantly uh, from the region. There are uh, historical communities who had come from different parts of the world. So for example from Caucasians. Uh, from the 19th century they made Saudi Arabia their home, they were escape- uh, and early in the 20th century the Muslims from the Caucasus came to Saudi Arabia escaping Stalinism. Uh, also there were uh, Thai Muslims living in Saudi Arabia for generations. Uh, also there are uh, Hadramis, I refer to Bin Laden, his father belongs to a Greater group who came to Saudi Arabia in the 1920s and 30s, and they are indigenous, in inverted commas, Saudis who had been there for a long time. So calls for purifying Saudi Arabia from foreign elements uh, are are, uh, uh, made public. Uh, Another aspect of this new nationalism is the language of treason that is used constantly. Uh, Before, at the time of religious nationalism, in order to protect the monarchy, uh, anybody who is a dissident will be regarded as a kafir, as a blasphemous person because committing treason against God and the king and the nation. But now they are pure or treacherous people. So the language of treason is troubling and it is an aspect of this new nationalism. Um, So um, there are 15 operatives dispatched to Istanbul to Kil Khashoggi in 2008 are believed to be part of a, a special force known as the Tiger Squad that is trained to get rid of the dissidents, those uh, 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 who commit treason against Saudi Arabia. And that led to the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi journalist. Um, the ultranationalism we are seeing today is also associated with group punishment. Of dissidents, activists, and critics of the regime, if they leave the country, then their families are subjected to uh, harsh treatment, and and also they are banned from travel and put in prison. So the three stages of constructing the Saudi nations were attempts to homogenise the fragments, but by their own nature, they all failed to inc- to be inclusive in a true sense. They were. Effectively divisive. From its early days, the religious national narrative excluded religious minorities and even some Sunni Muslims uh, because their Islam was regarded as uh, different and illegitimate uh, by the uh, intelligentsia of the central province of Saudi Arabia equally the pan-Islamic transnational identity excluded those Muslims who were either opposed to Saudi politics or political projects for example the Iranian Shia or uh, uh, differed for example Turkey uh, because they were dubbed as uh, Sufis followers of a different kind of Islam from the one practiced in Saudi Arabia so even when we're talking about pan-Islamic nationalism also succeeded in excluding other Muslims. The narrative uh, uh, today leads to xenophobia and populism, as we all know, justifies targeting critics and dissidents. The trend that many people describe today as the new Saudi nationalism may not be nationalism at all after going through uh, this. What we are witnessing is the systematic and aggressive efforts of a prince who was elevated to the highest position in the state with no history of experience in government at the expense of other more senior princes to consolidate his power. A true nationalist movement would require more than rhetoric, thuggery, murder, and readily available treason charges against critics. There are no outstanding ideologues in this nationalism who can construct a plausible new national narrative, one that is anchored in an imagined new Saudi identity that partly relies on a pre-Islamic heritage, Islam, and current promises of a prosperous future. It has rightly been pointed out that nationalism in the Gulf itself, in general, remains a highly contested notion liable to promote as much as conceal national divisions. With the surge in a Saudi national identity so firmly anchored in the central province of the country where the royal family originated, and with a strong pride in the centrality of this province, places like Shiite dominated Qatif, in the eastern province, Asir in the south, and the Hijaz in the west, which host the holy cities of Mecca and Medina, All have their own local identities that may be empowered by nationalism and may bristle against the state's imposition of of the Najdi symbols, rituals, and culture. The new new Saudi nationalism may unleash counter-regional nationalism that threaten the domination of both the Al Saud and their loyal supporters in Najd itself. So I should stop here and uh, I'm happy to take some questions.
1: Great. Thank you very much, Professor uh, Al-Mashid, for your presentation. Um, we'll now open the floor to questions from the audience. If you could raise your hand. And then I'll indicate, in the Rogan microphone reaches you. Uh, you can pose your question. Those of you that are online or online on audience, if you could add your question to the chat function on your screen, and we'll get to you as well. Uh, please do provide your name and affiliation uh, when answering your questions.
0: Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. Like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Uh, thank you, Professor. It was lovely to hear you talk about Saudi nationalism. I'm Harshit. I'm studying at the media department here at the LSE. My question is with regards to two significant events that happened in the, during the formation of Saudi nationalism, uh, one, the execution of Sheikh Nimr al-Nimr, second, the, uh, uh, the execution of uh, journalist Jamal Khosoggi. I would like to know from you how these two events or any such events in the history of Saudi nationalism has defined and reimagined the nationalism for people within the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and its own interpretation on a world forum. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I mean very good questions. I mean both executions took place um, uh, as uh, uh, Mohammed bin Salman began to, to consolidate his power in Saudi Arabia, 2016 and Khashoggi in 2018. And in a way, I mean it's interesting. Nimr and Nimr is a Shiite cleric who was um, um, associated with the. Uh, uh, activism on the ground in the eastern province and uh, he was uh, caught and uh, uh, put on trial then executed. Jamal Khashoggi comes from the other side of of the country with big differences. Nimr and Nimr was in a context among the Shia community where activism had a long history and the Shia had been asking for their rights Had been asking for recognition of their religious rituals and there were some concessions made for example the local authority would give them a space in the cemetery to bury their uh, uh, dead because they have a special area etc but the biggest issue was equality. At the time Uh, Nimr al-Nimr was infused by the Arab uprising, and he participated in in, uh, encouraging people to uh, participate in demonstrations, and he was held (coughs) responsible for uh, the agitations that took place in the eastern province. Also, he is known to have associated with what they call Hezbollah al-Hijaz, which is a branch of Hezbollah, but it's not really a branch of Hezbollah, it's just the name Hezbollah and hijaz although he was in the eastern province. Uh, Khashoggi is a completely different person. Khashoggi was embedded in the regime. Khashoggi was a, 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 a journalist who was started his career in the early 1980s. He was sent to Afghanistan to report on the Arab Afghans, There are so pictures of him carrying a Kleshenkov in somewhere in, 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 in Pakistan. Uh, and he was a, a very influential uh, journalist. He was the, ed, uh, the editor of a very important uh, local uh, newspaper. But with the change from King Abdullah to King Salman, it's a new, a new era. And it always happens that the old guards are replaced by the new one. He was put under restrictive conditions. He was sacked from his job. He wasn't allowed to uh, like, socialize with other people. And as a big ego, he could not accept his marginalization under King Salman. So also, he saw a lot of his colleagues and friends being put in prison without being able to defend them or write anything in support of them. So he went to Washington but the execution these are two very very important cases very publicized around the world but there are hundreds of other cases that nobody knows about uh, there are activists some of them were children when they were arrested especially the ones in the eastern province they were demonstrating at age 12 14 15 and they were executed when after age 18 uh, and they were held in prison so the I think from London we only hear about these spectacular sort of executions, but they take place all the time. And uh, it is a function of the regime wanted to silence everybody. Uh, in a way, Khashoggi uh, presented himself in his writings as a nationalist. He is worried and loyal to the Al Saud. But his nationalism wasn't, did not confirm or uh, is associated with the new nationalism that had taken place. Hi. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the transition from the second phase to the third phase, because as far as I understand, the transition from the first phase to the second phase was still operating in the context of the Cold War, and it's a bit more clear why it happened. Whereas, I was wondering what were what were the reasons for this sudden shift from Pan-Arabism to this new narrative of local identities. Thank you. Yes, I think the the first phase was the the raison d'etre of the state, why it it came. And the way it was explained, the process of building the nation, is that we have a mission. Uh, We are not good Muslims. And therefore, uh, the reason why we are in one entity is because we want to make ourselves good Muslims. So that was the first phase. It's creating an Islamic Utopia where the space is Islamic, where women are controlled, where the, the visibility of Islam is like prominent to homogenize people. Most importantly is the law as well. Because you can't have uh, uh, multiple schools of Islamic jurisprudence. For example, Fiqh, uh, like in the Hijaz, there were multiplicity of Islamic legal systems, and the, uh, the Wahhabi movement abolished that and it imposed its own Fiqh, the Hambali Fiqh, on the whole country. So judges can only judge, can only apply Hambali Fiqh, Hambali law to the exclusion of other schools of Islamic legal uh, uh, schools. And this was meant to homogenize Uh, the calls for prayer. All that was meant to give the Saudis sense that they are creating an Islamic utopia. But it's local. And uh, Saudi Arabia didn't have the means to spread it from day one. It's after the oil wealth and and, and after it found itself under threat by other ideologies in the Arab world such as nationalism, communism, socialism. That pan-Islamism became the, was regarded as the antidote to all these subversive forces. So if you are a socialist or you're calling for social justice from a Marxist, Leninist, whatever, the the type of groups that Fred studied, uh, you are a blasphemous person. You are engaged in a language that is against Islam, because communism or socialism was an atheist <coughs> ideology. But also, it was encouraged from outside Saudi Arabia. As I mentioned, You know, the West regarded that uh, uh, as important to silence all the anti-imperialist, anti-colonial forces in the Arab world and in, in the Muslim world in general, in Indonesia, in Morocco, in in other places. And I think that coincided also with the use of religion in international uh, uh, politics. Even in the USA, the rise of the uh, evangelical groups, uh, all of that became instrumental in the Cold War. You know, in countries where the Philippines, for example, among Christians in Brazil, and even today, we find that, you know, these are forces that unleash to fight a certain narrative that prevent people from uniting, uh, overlooking their religious differences. Very, it works very much like, you know, racism, breaking society into categories of people. And this pan-Islamic uh, uh, nationalism promised to, ma- to make us all as one ummah as one community, but also it excluded the others who do not conform to the, uh, to the right Muslim ummah, right Muslim community. So on the periphery of the Muslim world, a lot of Muslims were excluded from it. Can we go to the online audience
1: please? Hi, I have a question from an anonymous attendee in the online audience. How did the Shia world react to the Saudis attempt to establish themselves as the real international champions of Islam?
0: Sorry, how the Shia?
1: Yeah, how did the Shia world react? The Shia
0: world, yeah. Mm. Okay, well they weren't happy about it simply because (laughs) uh, because the uh, Saudi religious (coughs) tradition is very sectarian. It refuses to recognize other Mm -hmm. Muslims. Sunni Muslims who are, I don't want to go into the theology in greater detail, but for example, the Ash'ari Sunni Muslims are excluded from the Wahhabi tradition as true Muslims. Uh, The Shia, uh, the ethna Asharis, the 12 Shia as well, they were outside the realm of true Islam. The Zaydis in Yemen, the Ismailis in the southern part of Saudi Arabia, all of those are regarded as outside true Islam and should be Islamized. And only the Saudis, um, I mean, in fact, they, in Egypt, I think uh, Fawaz knows, the Azhar recognized them only in the 60s as, good, as, as true Muslims. Um, and there were also disputes with other uh, Muslims, for example, the Ibadis in Oman. They were not regarded as Muslims. So the Shia, like other Muslim minorities, were not regarded as true Muslims, uh, theologically. And the, the Nimr and Nimr is part of that resistance to this narrative about the exclusion of this community from the world of the Muslim Ummah. Then um, at the level of the state, Uh, So Saudi Arabia had no problem with Iran before 1979 under the Shah. In fact, the Shah of Iran was very helpful to the Saudis. Uh, uh, If you read uh, Fred's book, you will see how Iran was helping in Dufar uh, in suppressing the uh, rebellion in, in Dufar in southern Oman. Until 1979, uh, Iran was a friendly country to Saudi Arabia because it was policing the region on behalf of the US. But as Iran adopted also a religious national narrative, then the clash was inevitable between two types of nationalism.
1: Can we have a a question from this person on on the right? Thank you, Professor Al Rashid. This is a very informative uh, session on the history and the changes of uh, Saudi nationalism. Uh, I want, and unfortunately, uh, as we saw from your presentation, it's never been uh, a form where you could a sustainable or an inclusive form, as you said. Um, but I wanted to ask: Do you think now, in its current state, is Saudi nationalism somewhat of a lesser evil now that it's starting to distance itself from Wahhabism, or? is the state still very autocratic and oppressive and it's only going to, uh, it's only become worse for the people around it? Because as you mentioned, there's possibilities of counter nationalisms and a, a possible challenge to the uh, House of Saud. Um, so is backing away from Wahhabism a good thing, even though it's not the ideal situation at the moment?
0: Well, obviously there are merits in not exporting you know, radical Um, religious discourse. The danger was that both Saudi Arabia and the West weaponized Islam. And that's the danger. And we know what happened after that. They used religion as a weapon in their foreign policy. Um, There might be reasons at the time. There might have been reasons at the time, but weaponization of religion is extremely dangerous. And I hope Governments have learned a hard you know, a lesson from doing that. Now, whether the new nationalism is less of an evil, uh, it, it is trendy and uh, it, Western media seem to like it. Uh, and this is the whole point, that it, it, the audience is partly domestic, but also at the outside world. You know, if you want to bring in international capital, an investment to Saudi Arabia, you need to show that you are uh, trendy and liberal. Um, But I think whether it's religious, whether it's secular, whether it's uh, new local Saudi nationalism, I think all nationalism carries some kind of danger. And we have seen it, the history of Europe is a good example of, of that. Uh, you know, in the 20th century, how excessive nationalism could lead to massacres, extermination of people. Uh, it could. Uh, unfortunately, we are witnessing this at a global level. I mean, you know, perhaps the manifestation of it in Britain is the Brexit. In the U.S., what well, Trump was a manifestation of that. America is great, and there is a lot of copying. I, the slogans I mentioned, they're copied straight from Trump's agenda. You know, make Saudi Arabia great. I mean there is a hashtag called Saudi, uh, Saudi Al-Udma which is taken out of the US. So there is this kind of copying that takes place uh, across the world. But I think any excess <coughs> nationalism um, is dangerous. Um, you know, a bit of patriotism is okay but excessive, it might inspire people to do good things. But as I have seen it over the last seven, eight years with Mohammed bin Salman, it has led to some kind of nasty incidents, such as, for example, calling upon uh, citizens to become policemen to defend the nation, the Saudi nation, which means that everybody is an informer. Everybody is informing on everybody else. Publicly, of course, in the past this happened, but now it is a duty of the new citizen to spy on his, on other citizens. Publicly,
1: and and this is a dangerous phase. Could we have the student on the far, far <laughs> right? Hello. Um, at some point, I think you mentioned. Um, uh, being Arab and being Muslim as interchangeable. Uh, I may be mistaken, but uh, could that be an objective of this last uh, and current phase of Mohammed bin Salman? And if so, um, would that harm or um, help his uh, sort of non-secular agenda?
0: Sorry, um, say that again, the Arab and...
1: Uh, being Muslim and being Arab as being one and the, the same? But is that? Uh, no, a, a obviously good
0: there are Arabs who are not Muslim. But they're uh, still uh, Arabs.
1: Sorry, just uh, I thought you mentioned that they were um, interchangeable. Interchangeable, That's why.
0: No, no, no. no, Obviously not. Yeah.
1: Um, Maybe the person to the to the on the area here. Hi, I just wanted to ask, what did you think is the impact, say, on women moving from the sort of Islamic nationalism to the Saudi nationalism we're at today? Because, as much as it's great, from at least what I've studied, that especially, you know, with Vision 2030 coming up and this push towards women, like, obtaining these jobs now. You know, they have, like, different initiatives for women in law. You know, women hadn't entered courts from 2013, but, you know, in 2016, that sort of began and took off. And although that is great, do you think, from your research, there's, like, any challenges that women will face, like, suddenly having to be this, like, Islamic, virtuous woman, potentially, like, homemaker, Backbone of the house to, you know, suddenly being put into this like different form of nationalism to be like a desirable citizen.
0: very good question. So um, the general narrative and the belief across the world that Saudi women are having a great time now because they are visible. They're appointed to high-ranking jobs. They are uh, uh, participating in the economy. They are sent abroad to study. They can drive. They can travel without the permission of their um, guardian. The guardian system is eroded, but not completely abolished. But there are still, uh, it's a long way. Um, I was uh, asked by a journalist, and he said to me, why are you objecting now? You can drive in Saudi Arabia. I said, yes, mm-hmm. I could drive myself to prison. <laughs> <laughs> so, in a way, uh, the, the, religion, the Saudi nationalism today emphasizes the role of women because they have to be sp- participating in all activities, like in football as spectators. They can play football. They um, um, can uh, uh, you know, uh, be as the vanguards of Saudi modernity. And Saudi Arabia is a late comer to this game. You know, the Turks have done it before them, the Algerians, the Egyptians, the the Tunisian, they all used women to show how modern the nation is. But, for example, a Saudi woman cannot uh, marry without the permission of the guardian. It's even worse if she marries a foreigner she has to have the permission of the Ministry of Interior, which is not granted automatically. If, uh, if a man asks for it, he'll, he'll get it. But a woman is more complicated. Also, she cannot give her citizenship to her children if, if she's married to a foreigner. So as citizens, I believe both men and women are lacking serious political and human rights. Even with the hype about the new neoliberal economy and the entertainment and the jobs that are created for the women.
1: Wonderful. Um, it's been a great pleasure to have the opportunity for both me and I, I trust all of you in the audience to listen to Professor Al Rashid, uh, the Department of International Relations' next public lecture, "The Revolutionary City: Urbanization in the Global Transformation," will be taking place this Thursday. We ask that you please follow us on X, Instagram, LinkedIn to stay updated with our events program. Thank you all for, in person who've joined us and those of you online. Thank you, Professor Al-Rashid, for much, very much for taking part. We're most grateful for your time and for offering us a very insightful and interesting lecture. Thank you very Thank much. You.
0: Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next we hope you join us at another lse event soon